Hello, everyone. This is Neil Piper, Executive Director at the Presidential Precinct. Today, I'm excited to welcome you to a special season of our Global Founders podcast. Over the next few weeks, we're sharing conversations with Mandela Washington Fellows at the Presidential Precinct. Alongside co-hosts Will Amaker and Benjamin Hotchner and faculty from across the precinct's five partner sites, Mandela Washington Fellows are leading conversations around the world's most pressing challenges, including human rights and justice, governance and democratic development, access to education, and more. This week, we sit down with two individuals championing the fight for transparency and reconciliation in the face of egregious historic injustices. Embrima Sunko is a leader in the Gambia's Truth, Reconciliation, and Reparations Commission that investigates human rights abuses committed by the previous government. And Dr. Jody Allen is the director of the Lemon Project, an organization dedicated to investigating the history of race and slavery at her partner site, William & Mary. Join them in this powerful discussion on historical injustices and the possible paths towards reconciliation. Then after the episode, you can learn more about the Mandela Washington Fellowship by visiting presidentialprecinct.org forward slash LMWF. started. Please tell us a bit about yourselves, your projects, and the historical processes that led to their conception. Okay, thank you very much, Ben. My name is Ibrahim Asunko. Um, I'm from the Gambia. I'm Mandela Washington Fellow, 2019. Precisely, um, regarding your question, I would like to offer some a little bit of historical context to it. So Gambia as a country um, gained its Republican status in 1970 as a country, and that was when we also had our first president. Um, were um, former British colony, um, among other countries like Ghana and Nigeria and all of those countries. So in 1970, we gained our Republican status and we had our first constitution as a country as well. So that also led to the Gambia being um, having one of the longest constitutional democracies in the world from uh, 1970 to 1994, when there was a military coup um, led by some military members. Um, between 1994 to 1996, the military junta, as expected, they abrogated the constitution, um, 1970 constitution, and they suspended it. And they uh, instituted degrees, um, as of course, this is what many military democracy, uh, military um, regimes would always do once they come into power. They suspend the constitution, abrogate it, and they institute their own ways of ruling. So they institute uh, the military decrees and suspended the constitution, suspended the civil and political rights of the people. So between 1994 to 1996, the military were involved in massive, massive, massive systematic um, human rights violations because they were not ruling um, with um, the whims and caprices of the constitution per se, but they were ruling according to what they felt was right, um, suspending the liberty, the political freedom, um, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech um, of, of the people of the Gambia. So 1996, the Gambia um, underwent another elections um, and in 1997, a new constitution was introduced. So we had what was referred to as our second constitution, as a second republic called the 1997 Constitution of the Gambia. And so this was very symbolic um, for, for us as a country because it was also the shift from military government to a civilian government. And this was the period where the military metamorphosed into 
and gain an acceptance from the people of the Gambia. So within the period of 1994 to 2017 was when um, the, the, the supposed civilian government of uh, the former military people, folks, um, they, in 2016, there was another elections and then they were booted out of office because the people felt that um, they were involved in a lot of human rights violations. There was widespread um, corruption, widespread economic inequalities. There were systematic failures in terms of addressing the needs and aspirations of our Gambian people. That for 22 years, there were severe human rights violations. That people were maimed. Um, fathers were picked up, up from their, their families and they never saw them again. I mean, kids, people like us who were born in 1994, within that era, we knew no nothing about freedom. You know, we were circled, our opinions were, were stifled. You know, we knew nothing about that. You know, growing up and having access to education, we realized we had more to do. And, you know, we joined our forces to ensure that there has to be some sort of accountability for what has happened um, from the past 22 years. Um, that was exactly what led to um, the establishment of, among other things, our transitional justice process as a country, uh, as the aftermath of what happened for the past 22 years. And through that, we established our first um, Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission in the Gambia to look into the affairs of the human rights violations that happened from July 1994 to January 2017. Now, if the fundamental question one may be prompted to ask is, what actually, uh, why haven't we gone with the normal justice system um, to prosecute individuals who were most culpable for the human rights violation? And this is a very important question because it will decide where the country want to go to um, for the next um, decade or century to come. And through this means, a, a nationwide consultation was done or whether we want the usual justice system to prosecute individuals um, through our system of um, institutional system of governance. Or should we just think of something else? Should we consider more of um, a restorative system of justice um, through involving the community, involving the offenders, um, involving justice system net networks to complement or augment our justice system to hold those who are most responsible for human rights violations for the past 22 years. And we realized that through our present justice system, we cannot do that because through the usual justice system, it's about, you know, justice be done though the heaven falls. You know, just punish the wrongdoer for their actions without understanding the context or pattern that led to it. What were the systematic failures? What were the command um, systems? What was the atmosphere like that allowed these people to perpetrate some of these gross human rights violations that happened? So almost there was a general national consensus that there was need for us to have a Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission. And the idea of the Truth Commission um, came against the backdrop of the fact that we need to know what happened in our country, especially for young people like myself from 1994-2017, that we knew a little bit of what was happening. All we knew was there was a dictatorial regime that did not give us opportunity to share our voices, that did not give us a ch chance to harness our opportunities as young people. And, you know, the fact that... Um, you know, we couldn't explore some of the opportunities that had the potential of changing our life and our country. There was time for us to change the, the course of our history. The National Assembly passed a legislation called the Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Act um, in 2017, January. Um, that sets out the mandate of the Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission. And that just so we were not going to operate in an isolation where just a group of interested people just come and said, look, we have a truth commission, but what are the aims and objectives? What are the parameters under which the Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations Commission is going to work on? And this is why um, we had the National Assembly uh, passed a um, an act assented to by the President of the Gambia in January 2016. And part of the objectives of um, the the Truth, Reconciliation and Reparation Commission is to um, heal the, the country, to restore 
the sanity and dignity of, of our people, to bridge the economic inequality among our people, to recommend for prosecutions for those who are most culpable for the human rights violations that happen, uh, but also to also help identify the whereabouts of victims um, who we have no idea of where they are, you know, to, to ensure that we set an impartial historical record of the human rights violations that happened for the past 22 years. So these are some of the primary objectives of the Truth, Reconciliation and Reparation Commission, just to offer some historical context from where we were, where we are now, and um, as we get into the discussion proper, where we want to head to as a country. Hi, my name is Jody Allen. I teach here in the History Department at William & Mary, and I'm the director of the Lemon Project, A Journey of Reconciliation. In 2007, um, the state of Virginia uh, was recognizing 400 years of um, since the landing at, at Jamestown. And so the, the state um, issued an apology, well, a statement of regret. They never use the word apology uh, for its role in slavery. And so that same year, um, there was a student here on the who was a senator on the um, in the student government, the student the, the student assembly, and she had taken some classes that opened up her eyes to William and Mary's role as a slaveholder, um, and she wanted to know more about it. And so she. Um, proposed a resolution that called on William and Mary to study its history with um, as a slaveholder, make that history public, and then establish a memorial to the people who were enslaved by the college. And so the, the next year, the faculty assembly passed a similar resolution saying it's time for us to look at this history. And so it's the, the, a, a man named Robert Ings was brought, he was a historian of this area, but he was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania at the time. And it was, the belief was that it was best to bring in an outsider, someone who wouldn't necessarily be worried about offending the administration or the alums, but who would come in, do, do the research. And so he did, he came, he worked with um, some current graduate students and some, there was a small committee of um, faculty and they figured out what, um, they, they initially just started, wanted to look at the archives and see what kind of records were there. It happened that there was a graduate student in a doctoral program in history who was doing her dissertation on institutional slavery. And she had a chapter on William and Mary. And she was a person who came across this list of um, enslaved people in the bursar's office from the 18th, it was an 18th century list. On that list um, was a man named Lemon. Dr. Eames wrote a uh, report for the Board of Visitors um, saying, yes, indeed, William and Mary had owned slaves, William and Mary owned the plantation, um, and, you know, kind of giving some of the that, that history. And so the Board of Visitors took his report and developed a resolution that was passed in 2009. And that resolution called on the well acknowledged that William and Mary had been a slaveholder. Also took it another step further and acknowledged that William and Mary had also been an adherent to the rules of Jim Crow or, or legal segregation. Um, that William and Mary needed to um, establish itself as a good neighbor, in particular in the um, Williamsburg and Greater Williamsburg area, with the African American community, and so and, and then. Finally, that um, resolution 
call for a the Lemon Project, a journey of reconciliation. It was initially supposed to be an eight-year um, research project, and so it was um, that that was established. Funding um, was established out of the provost's office, but one of the and and I was hired, <laughs> and one of the. Um, one of the things that we acknowledged early on, though, was that we could not go into the archives for eight years, maybe come out with this, you know, wonderful stack of research, but we, it, we needed to, at the same time we were in the archives, we needed to also work in the community. Um, and so we, we kind of shifted a little. Um, the, re the archival research um, was still a main part of it, but we also did community engagement um, activities. We started a, um, an annual symposium that takes place in the spring, and the idea was to bring together the William and Mary community, the local community, to hear about what the what research we were finding, and also what the local community was interested in in doing. We were about to have our tenth next um, March, our tenth symposium, and and so that's kind of I guess how the Lemon Project um, got started. But just to, to to back up and just say that William and Mary, from its very foundations, are based on the enslavement of its workers. When the um, king and queen of England, um, William and Mary, um, when they established a charter, that charter says that the, um, the school, the, the building and the payment of the faculty, the administration, the building of the actual institution was to be paid um, with the proceeds of their tobacco plantations. And we know who was growing, for the most part, the tobacco at that time, where it was enslaved people. Um, we know that the Virginia General Assembly gave um, William and Mary in 1718 funds to which they used to buy 17 humans, and they also bought um, a plantation, a tobacco plantation that was again used. The, the proceeds of which were used to um, uh, maintain, build, and educate less wealthy white males is how um, it was um, described. And so for the next 170 years or so, William and Mary was a slaveholding institution. Sometimes they actually, after the revolution, they tended to hire in more enslaved people than they owned, but they, but, but, the labor of enslaved people was still at the very foundation. So they did the cooking, the cleaning. They were responsible for making sure there was wood in the student rooms, wood in the classrooms. Um, they they painted, they repaired, um, they cleaned the clothes, they cleaned the boots, they cleaned the stables. I mean, you name it. They made the lives of the white males who were here at the time livable, comfortable, um, and so that they could focus on being students, you know, and perhaps, you know, some of the seeds of the democracy or the, the coming republic were, were built as Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe, or, you know, as, and, and they had time to think about those things because someone else was doing the work. And so it's, you can't really, just like in this country in general, you can't separate 
um, the foundation of the country and the building of the country from the enslavement of of people. So it's it's important, um, and I'm I'm happy that that those students and those faculty and that the administration of William and Mary acknowledged and recognized the important role that these individuals played, and that it's time to remember them because, and so now we are looking to include those people in the story because just because you leave out the ugly parts of history does not mean it goes away, you know? And so, and we don't really get to pick and choose if we're going to do it right. And if we're going to make lasting change, we have to acknowledge, um, just like after all these years that it was ignored, it came back up again because people found out about it and they wanted to know more about it. And so you have to um, acknowledge it, um, embrace it, and move forward.